The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, got some breaking news for you. So the special counsel who was investigating Joe Biden over his handling or mishandling of classified documents has returned his report. And um, there's a piece of this that is not shocking. They are filing no charges, but there is another piece of this, which is really wild, which the reason, part of the reason he gives for not charging Joe Biden is effectively that he says he is too feeble-minded for a jury to find him guilty at this point. Let me just break this down for you, everything we know at this point, because it really is a very wild development. So this is from the Washington Post headline, special counsel, no charges for Biden and classified documents probe, evidence of willful mishandling of classified papers, but not enough to win a conviction, according to the special counsel. I'll read to you from the Washington Post. They said Joe Biden carelessly handled classified materials found at his home and former office after his vice presidency and shared government secrets with his ghostwriter. But that evidence was not strong enough to justify charging him with crimes, according to a long-awaited special counsel report released Thursday. The 345-page Justice Department finding ends an investigation that has hung over the president's head for more than a year. The report could prove to be a political liability, however, because it describes President Biden, 81, as a forgetful old man who kept notebooks and documents with classified information at his home, a stinging characterization that will likely be used against him by Republicans. I think uh, anyone who has seen him recently might uh, think twice about their desire to have him in the White House again, based not only on that, but on his recent actions. Biden, in a written statement, defended himself as someone who has always taken seriously the protection of national security secrets. I cooperated completely, threw up no roadblocks, and sought no delays. In fact, I was so determined to give the special counsel what they needed that I went forward with five hours of in-person interviews over two days amid the U.S. government response to an international crisis, Biden said, referring to the Hamas October 7th attack on Israel. I just believe that's what I owed the American people so they could know no charges would be brought and the matter closed. Special counsel Robert Hur, who interviewed the president at the White House himself, found evidence that Biden willfully retained and disclosed classified materials after his vice presidency when he was a private citizen, but concluded that evidence does not establish Mr. Biden's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Also, Hur's team said, 
prosecuting Biden would be, quote, unwarranted based on our consideration of the aggravating and mitigating factors laid out in Justice Department prosecution policies to secure a conviction. Officials would need to prove to a jury that Biden retained the information willfully. And they go on to say that that would be an obstacle because the jury would likely find Biden to be a sympathetic figure and a, quote, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. The president of the United States. That's who we're talking about here. Prosecutors also suggested might not have struck Biden as noteworthy that he was in possession of classified documents so soon after his term as vice president had ended. As if that is not bad enough, let me go ahead and pull up for you some of the specific parts of this report that mention the uh, memory lapses that Biden apparently suffered from during this interview. This is from Bronco Marsicich, who read through the report and pulled out some of the critical pieces that showed Biden's, quote, diminished faculties and faulty memory. Um, according to the report, in both the interview recordings with his ghostwriter and when they interviewed him, during which the report says he had gotten worse, he could not remember when he was vice president, and he couldn't remember within several years of when his son had died. Let me read you these sections from the report. Here's one piece. He says, in addition, Mr. Biden's memory was significantly limited during both his recorded interviews with the ghostwriter in 2017 and in his interview with our office in 2023 and his cooperation with our investigation, including by reporting to the government that the Afghanistan documents were in his Delaware garage, will likely convince some jurors that he made an innocent mistake rather than acting willfully that is with intent to break the law as the statute requires. Here's another piece. Mr. Biden's memory also appeared to have significant limitations, both at the time he spoke to Zwanitzer in 2017, as evidenced by their recorded conversations, and today, as evidenced by his recorded interview with our office, Mr. Biden's recorded conversations with Zwanitzer from 2017 are often painfully slow, with Mr. Biden struggling to remember events and straining at times to read and relay his own notebook entries. That's from 2017. That was some years ago. And they said that his memory had gotten worse. In his interview with our office, Mr. Biden's memory was worse. He did not remember when he was vice president. Forgetting on the first day of the interview when his term ended, quote, if it was 2013, when did I stop being vice president? And forgetting on the second day of the interview when his term began, in 2009, am I still vice president? He did not remember, even within several years, when his son, Bo, died, and his memory appeared hazy when describing the Afghanistan debate that was once so important to him. Among other things, he mistakenly said he had a real difference of opinion with General Carl Eikenberry when, in fact, Eikenberry was an ally whom Mr. Biden cited approvingly in his Thanksgiving memo to President Obama. Um, last piece here. They say, given the intelligence and military officials present, the topics discussed, Mr. Biden should have realized the notes did or likely to contain classified information, but take us in a whole the evidence will likely leave jurors with reasonable doubts about whether Mr. Biden knew he was sharing classified information with Zwanitzer, that's his ghostwriter, and intended to do so. For these jurors, Mr. Biden's apparent lapses and failures in February and April will likely appear consistent with the diminished faculties and faulty memory he showed in Zwanitzer's interview recordings and in our interview of him. Therefore, we conclude that the evidence does not establish that Mr. Biden willfully disclosed national defense information to Zwanitzer. So absolutely stunning that in this report, special counsel from within Biden's own DOJ, they are saying they did not charge him in part because he was too old and feeble-minded to really know what he was doing 
was unable to cite even with several years when his own son, Bo, died. Biden team out uh, blasting the report, saying we're glad you didn't charge us, but this was inappropriate. They don't say what was inappropriate, but we can all guess what part they object to here. Biden legal team blasts special counsel's inappropriate report, saying that they were trashing the president. President Biden's legal team on Thursday blasted parts of a report by special counsel Robert Hur, accusing him of investigative excess that resulted in trashing the subject of an investigation. Bob Bauer, Biden's personal counsel, said in a statement shortly after the report's release that the public's findings violate well-established department norms, that it was essentially trashing the subject. Quote, the Department of Justice Inspector General observed only a few years ago that high-profile investigations such as those of a president may be subject to scrutiny not typical of the average criminal case, but that does not provide a basis for violating well-established department norms and essentially trashing the subject of an investigation with extraneous, unfounded, and irrelevant critical commentary. The special counsel could not refrain from investigative excess, perhaps unsurprising given the intense pressures of the current political environment. Whatever the impact of those pressures on the final report, it flouts department regulations and norms. White House also pushed back, calling parts of the report inappropriate and inaccurate. We disagree with the number of inaccurate and inappropriate comments in the report. Nonetheless, the most important decision that no charges are warranted is firmly based on the facts and evidence. Again, they did not mention which part was inappropriate, but we are presuming it's the part describing Biden as a, quote, sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory and conveying that Biden's memory had significant limitations. Um, Guesses that that is the part of the report they find to be inappropriate and are objecting to. I don't know what to tell you guys. It is absolutely wild that this is where we're at, that these are the two candidates that we're faced with, that the Democratic Party shut down any and all possibility of having a Democratic choice in the primary. You know, they claim to believe this election to be existential. They claim to believe democracy is on the line. And yet here we are with a man who, by his own Justice Department's accounting, is too feeble minded to even remember the basics of when he was vice president and when his own son died or the basic contours of debates. Of course, this comes amid a rash of reports about, uh, and not just reports, but video that we can all watch of how much is he is struggling on a daily basis to recount basic facts, stories, figures, faces from his life. We now have two incidents within a week's time of him telling a story about some world leader and him naming two different world leaders who have been dead for years. Uh, We had another incident where he was attempting to update us on a Hamas response to a ceasefire proposal where he painfully struggled to recall the word Hamas, had to be sort of prompted by uh, someone who was nearby. These lapses are common, but they're becoming more and more and more regular. Um, His team also, and he also recently deciding not to do a Super Bowl interview sit-down Um, This is the second year that they've decided to do that, but this year it would have been with a relatively friendly news outlet and, of course, passing up on the chance to get himself in front of millions and millions of voters at a time when he trails often in the polls to Donald Trump. So voters say overwhelmingly his age and ability is a top, top concern for them. And needless to say, this report will do absolutely nothing to alleviate their concerns. All right. Welcome to a special issue of Breaking Points. Pakistani voters went to the polls across the country today. 
uh, and I am kind of new to handling the different devices on this, uh, this, this Riverside Live thing. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to turn it over to you, uh, Murtaza Hussein, my colleague over at The Intercept First, to give us a little bit of background. Um, we're also going to be joined by uh, Wakas Ahmed, who's a Pakistani journalist, to talk about the absolutely shocking election results so far. And then, and then I'm going to play a little bit of videos that we've picked up uh, from social media and also from my, uh, my questioning of the State Department earlier today. So, uh, Maz, kind of ca catch us up. What, what's going on so far? So for the past couple of months, the Pakistani military, or beyond that even, the Pakistani military has been working to effectively rig the Pakistani elections. Of course, The Intercept, we've done some reporting showing how the U.S. was involved in deposing Imran Khan, who's, by polls show, the most popular prime minister in Pakistan, the most popular politician in Pakistan, the former prime minister. And Mr. Khan, you know, has been banned from the elections. His party has been more or less dis dismantled or made efforts to dismantle them by the military. And yet it seems that despite all these massive roadblocks and impediments put in their way, the Pakistani uh, Tariq Ansaf, as it's called, looks set to win the elections according to early polling results. And not just win the elections, but decisively win the elections. So I think it's quite a resounding sort of message to the military uh, that despite their attempts to suppress Mr. Khan's party, suppress him personally, he's currently in jail, uh, the people of Pakistan clearly have evident strong favorability towards him and his party. And whatever efforts they've undertaken to block his uh, electoral chances or to even impugn his credibility and reputation have not seemed to resonate with the people of Pakistan, as we're seeing tonight with these results. Yeah, and the, the most blatant thing they've done, I guess, has been you know abduct, ab abducting candidates uh, per, to prevent them from even running, and then also knocking down uh, mobile service and the and and the internet uh, leading up to the uh, election but they also not only jailed the the leading candidate Imran Khan but effectively like you said dismantled his party and so as we talk about these results we're going to be talking about independents who are backed by the PTI rather than PTI candidates and Wakas why, why is that? Uh, well uh PTI has been actually banned from running as a party. So this like, PT, PTI candidates cannot run as members of PTI and they're supposed to run as independents. So what we're now seeing like it results are, we're seeing the effects of that, uh, what was intended initially. They wanted PTI to be off the ballot so that when results start coming in, we do not see PTI victory decisively. We stay confused about uh, which candidates are actually winning because, because now they have independent in front of their name instead of PTI. So uh, I'm looking at results like out of 483 that have currently come in, 283 are uh, independents. We don't know if they're PTI, they're most likely PTI. So overwhelmingly, these independent candidates are winning. But one way to look at it is by giving votes to these independent candidates overwhelmingly against all other parties that were favored by the military, people have actually rejected those parties and actually favored independents, which are basically members of PTI. All right, that's, that's important context uh, for the question that I had at the State Department today uh, for Vidant Patel. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull this up and then we can talk about uh, what his answer, what his answer means. So here, here this goes. Following up on, on Pakistan, thank you for taking the question. So far, the preliminary results have Imran Khan's party, I think, at this point, with leading in 136 districts at three times the next closest one. Now seeing reports in Pakistan of 
two separate things. Uh, one, the army is in the streets, the police are in the streets, they're surrounding polling stations, and you're seeing a lot of reports and videos of efforts to change the vote. They're picking election officials out. A lot of concern that that number 136 by tomorrow morning in Pakistan could be pushed down lower. Separately, you're seeing also purpose uh, in Pakistan attempts by the kind of military connected uh, uh, officials to take the independents who are associated with PTI and pressure them to join other parties. So even though Imran Khan's party might win a majority after torture and bribery, you could have a different government take power. So you've, from the point, stood up for free and fair elections. But free and fair elections are one thing, but if you torture your way to a majority after that, that doesn't quite that doesn't quite live up to kind of the values that you were stating for. This seems like a pretty pivotal moment for Ryan, America and the Pakistan relations. But Ryan, the thing about preliminary uh, results is that they are uh, preliminary, and uh, I am not going to get ahead of any official results, and so I'm not going to uh, comment or speculate further on what uh, government could look like, what the makeup could be, or anything like that. You would but be okay. Just, what That's I will it. just reiterate again is that we condemn. Uh, all instances of election-related violence, even some of the kinds that you were describing, uh, that took place in the weeks preceding the election as well as on election day. We also believe that these kinds of actions have affected a number of political parties across uh, Pakistan. And we're also concerned about the steps that were taken to restrict freedom of expression, specifically around internet and cell phone use. But again, I'm just not going to... Uh, just real quick, speculate like, on results or government makeup. But, let, but let's say the Pakistani people do elect a majority of independents associated with the PTI, but then after a bunch of backroom negotiations, which are accompanied by reports of torture, all of a sudden there's another candidate that has a majority. Would that be okay with the United I'm not States? Gonna, I'm not going to speculate You can't say that wouldn't be okay with the United on, States. I'm not going to hypothesize on a made-up uh, situation that you're just describing right now. We will, at there some are, point, I have no doubt that the United States of America will comment on the election, official election results when they happen. But till then, um, uh, we will defer to the uh, uh, electoral process, <laughs> we believe uh, we take very seriously. All right, well, Kass, what, what was your reaction uh, to, to the, that answer? Uh, th this is honestly disgusting at this point, because what we have to take into account what has happened on the ground in Pakistan. They have tied the legs and arms of one political party, and he just said that uh, it has happened to a number of political parties, name right. two. Right. There is no other party right. that this has happened to. There, it has only happened to one political party. And they have tie, uh, tied the arms and legs of this political party. They have put people in jail, thousands of people, including the leaders. They have banned this party. Yet, yet today we see this party winning in absolute like crazy numbers. And this is something inspirational. It is like it is about the, the the indefeatableness of the human spirit. It's something like that. It's something epic that has happened to Pakistan. And then to steal this from Pakistani people who have resisted the military junta for so long and who have fought so bravely and so amazingly using democracy and no violence, nothing at all. And now they have voted uh, the people that they have chosen. And this mandate is about to be stolen from them. And all of these people who have stayed quiet for two years and who have condoned this violence that has happened with Pakistani democracy, they will continue to do so. It will honestly be so disgusting to watch. 
Yeah, Maz, what was your reaction when you saw the stadium? What do you, what do you think? What, what should we draw from that? Well, he's clearly not very happy with your consistent questioning of him at these at these uh, <laughs> at these uh, conferences. But I think it's interesting to draw a juxtaposition between his response and the way they respond in countries where there's similar or even less egregious or you know vote rigging that takes place beforehand. And the U.S. Department, State Department is quite vocal about it. They're quite uh, you know enthusiastic in condemning those cases. He's so you know, cautious in this case about saying that. At the end, if you notice, he doesn't even say that we take the results, the, the election process is legitimate. He says we take it seriously. It's impossible, <laughs> to stop it's impossible to say anything otherwise at this point. So I think, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people in Pakistan, as Bokas was saying, you know, they do very strongly believe in democracy, despite all these roadblocks put in their way. And they're counting on, because of the role the U.S. plays in Pakistan as a de facto part of the ruling compact in some way, the influence it has, and given the U.S.'s vocal support of democracy globally, they expect some sort of consistency and some sort of uh, reliability from the U.S. government. Unfortunately, they expect that, and it doesn't seem to be forthcoming. So I think that if it were to come to pass that even after this very significant and I think shocking in many ways election result to, to come out this way despite all these roadblocks, uh, if the U.S. government sits quietly or even endorses an outcome which is clearly unfair and clearly unjust with the perspective of Mr. Khan's supporters, I think you'll see a great disillusionment. you see that the U.S. ability to speak in other contexts will be greatly hindered as well. And re related to the State Department, I wanted to quickly share this New York Times uh, article that, that has, was updated just maybe 10, 20 minutes ago. Uh, it says here, um, as a result, this is from the New York Times, the coverage of the election, uh, as results began to trickle in Thursday evening. The party of former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, the military's preferred party of the moment, was still expected to win, but it, not look, but it did not look like it would pull off the easy victory that was widely predicted. So to describe uh, this earlier, I think it described them as neck and neck, but this, it's been updated even since then. So they took out the kind of neck and neck uh, verbiage, but they left in was still expected to win which to me is such a striking phrase because they might actually be correct. Like from the perspective of the State Department and the New York Times, regardless of the fact that, that the, that the uh, votes, and, and we can, can put the, uh, the, the votes are so heavily in favor of the PTI at this point, uh, the New York Times and the State Department may still expect uh, Nawaz Sharif to, to win. Uh, so Wakas, setting aside who got more votes, uh, what would you say about who's expected to win at this point? Well, independent is not a party. If independent was a party in Pakistan, it would be the biggest party in Pakistan's history right now. The way independents have won. So technically, and all of the things that State Department says and like the Pakistani government says is technically true. Technically, PMLN might be the biggest party. But independents, they still have more independence than them. So they'll have to get all these independents on board. And that will usually happen with military coercion, threats, bribery, and all of that. So State Department will be able to continue, will, they'll be continue to be able to say that technically PMLN emerged as the, as the biggest party. New York Times would, would like, truthfully say that PMLN is the largest party. But the context of that is that PTI has been banned. All of the PTI members are independents and independent right. has won.
So how would they? How would independents actually go about forming a party? I assume they'd have to find a a kind of rump faction of a party that they could then all join with. What is the PTI strategy? Assuming let, let's pretend that they can get through uh, the the overnight shenanigans and the torture and everything that we're going to see over the over the coming days, and they do emerge with a certified uh, majority. Like, how do they enact that majority in, in the parliament without having a party? Like, what, who do they align with? Well, they can form their own party or they can, uh, they, they can basically form a forward block within the PTI. Or this uh, the decision, the core decision that actually banned PTI is, uh, is in the process of being appealed. And if in appeal it goes and then PTI gets its symbol back, gets its party back, then PTI might be able to form a party in the parliament if nobody is able to get to them. That means that they might be able to vote for their own prime minister and they might be able to vote for their own cabinet. And if that happens, PTI would, it, it's really possible that they can have a party. So they're still in the game despite everything that has happened. And the major upset in this today's election was that PMLN did not win a clear majority and they would not be able to form a government. And now Pakistani parliament is, in any case, no matter what happens, it is going to be hung. What, what I'm playing here, this, this is footage of uh, police officials who are kind of surrounding a, a polling location. You're seeing tons of this um, from everywhere around the country. I can uh, try to share a little bit more, more of it. Oh, there we go. See, I told you I'm not very good at doing this. Um, let me try again. Let me, let me pull up a different one. Um, here's so here, if you go to my Twitter feed, you go to uh, if you go to what causes your feed is W O R K S. Uh, you'll find you'll find these videos everywhere. Uh, but it, it looks like it looks to be one of the most attempts to steal an election. Um, you know, documented on social media. Here's here's uh, somebody who's just been. Um, who's kind of been captured you have, you have other uh, videos of ballot boxes getting stuffed you have you have uh ballots on fire uh you have uh military figures throwing boxes into uh jeeps and right you know riding off with them uh Maz, do you think that it's do you think the the hill is too steep uh for the military to climb here to flip this election, or do you think that nothing is kind of out of reach here? Well, the thing is, they went to such extraordinary steps before the election to rig it with the internet shutdowns. You wrote a great article on the Intercept about it, actually, all the ways that they'd you know, gone above and beyond to try to fix this election beforehand, not least what they did with Imran Khan, personally right. himself as well, too. So, you know, after the vote, now having that having strategy having failed so visibly, so hugely in a way, now there's almost these very comically extreme attempts at rigging votes, stealing votes, he said, stopping ballots. Much of it captured in video. I think that the subtext of all this is that Pakistan military has been caught flat-footed by uh, the way that ordinary people have been kind of been empowered by social media. Mm-hmm. In a sense, because obviously PTI use social media very extensively, Imran Khan use extensively, and now you know they have these sort of very unsubtle forms of uh, manipulation of ballots. But people can record them and share them. So when everyone's seeing what's happening, it's all documented. It's not very effective anymore. It kind of, you know, implies more or shows more what's going on. So I think what may happen is that you know they still have all the guns in Pakistan. They still have 
all the institutional power, they may still be able to rig the vote in some other way by forcing, you know, people to change parties, uh, you know, various different ways of applying coercion to do that. But I think what's going to happen that is if they're still, you know, engineer a result at the end which they like, they're going to have such a crisis of credibility and lack of public consent because of all of Pakistan's democratic shortcomings, you need some critical mass of people who at least abide that this is a legitimate government. And if you don't have that, in the military's case, it would be very difficult to govern over a long time. So I think what could happen in the long term is you could see a return to military rule in Pakistan, which has happened many times in the past. There could be consequences, potentially in terms of sanctions from the U.S. and the international bodies. But, you know, if the Pakistani military sees it between a choice of losing power entirely or becoming a pariah and ruling directly, it may choose a lot. And Wakaz, I have to agree with you that watching people turn out in such force in the face of such repression was nothing short of inspiring. It, it, it became totally clear that the Pakistani people had immensely more faith in democracy uh, than, for instance, the State Department. You know, the, the United States has been practicing democracy for more than 200 years uh, and was kind of shown, I think, by the Pakistani people what democracy uh, actually means. And it they went out uh, knowing that there would be all of these, uh, you know, different elements of, of repression, uh, too too numerous and, and too absurd uh, to even to even get into. Um, so as as you are as you're watching these results come in, uh, where where would you suggest that people go to to be able to follow this? Because um, I know that people are getting really interested in this in this incredible story of of resilience by the Pakistani people, but it's very hard to find anywhere where you can actually kind of follow it uh, in, a, in a reliable way. So, like, where, where do you go for your news, and where should English-speaking English and reading audiences go uh, where, they can, where they can follow it? Well, it's uh, mostly on x.com, Twitter. Uh, everything is there. Pakistani media isn't that reliable, but there are some websites that are collecting data. So the data that has come in so far has been somewhat reliable because they're coming directly though that data is coming directly from polling station um, so if you go but to which, twitter which, there which might there are on, some yeah uh, well uh, the pti account itself is a very good resource to follow mm -hmm. about all the videos that are coming in because they have a huge network so if you follow PTI official, you'll see all the videos that they have been collecting about uh, rigging attempts and successful rigging attempts. You'd get to see those. And then there's a journalist, Imran Riaz Khan, I've recently heard. He was kidnapped for uh, five, six months, I think, uh, by the military. He was kept there. But if you search Imran Riaz Khan's name again, you'll see that he's still he's active again. And I've heard that they probably might attempt to kidnap him again. So, the, like journalists Incredibly in Pakistan, who we, yeah, he he went through. Yeah, uh, he was he was in custody for yeah. eight months. He yeah. yeah, he was tortured. He was alone. There was he wasn't in police custody. Nobody knew where he was. So when he came out, he was quiet. He couldn't even speak properly. He he was stuttering for a month, um, and now he's like like able to write uh, about things. So he's saying things again. And he might be picked up, but this is the problem with uh, following credible, like famous people in Pakistan because they get picked up. So you have to rely on anonymous accounts and you basically have to do your own fact checking 
you have to collate your own data and see if it's correct or not. It's like very few resources available in Pakistan. But if you go to Twitter, you get you get some idea of what's happening. Yeah, and I guess the last point I'd want to make uh, is to, you know thank everyone, uh, the the editors, uh, fact checkers, um, producers at, over at the Intercept that helped us do the reporting um, on on the uh, on the cable that you were talking about earlier, Wakas and. It, it, there's no guarantee that this is that this is going going to hold, but at some point, I don't I don't think the the generals are going to be able to hold back uh, this tide. But this would be you know the second kind of re reverse regime change operation, so to speak, that the Intercept would have been involved in in recent years. And you know our our colleagues down at the Intercept Brazil um, ex exposed corruption that had led to the jailing of uh, Lula da Silva down in Brazil. He was freed from office and. the Brazilian people restored him uh, to the presidency. You know, we're we're in the middle of uh, an, an epic moment here, uh, but we don't know where it ends. But uh, it, it's certainly something that I think the Pakistani people should be should be proud of. Any any last words uh, from from either of you that you wanted to um, you wanted to add? Yeah, I can add something. Uh, America and American government says it values democracy and it backs democracy all over the world. We have clearly seen what Pakistani people want, what the democratic aspirations of Pakistani people are. To continue to deny them is the United States and Biden administration would be thinking in a very short term to do that because if they continue to deny these people their democratic aspirations, you're turning a whole generation of Pakistanis into anti-American people. And that is not really, that doesn't really work for the American government. Pakistan is a big, major country, and eventually, if you can deny them their right for now, for, for one month, for one year, for five years, but eventually people will get what they're aspiring for. And when they do that, you don't want Pakistan to be like a second Iran, where, where the, 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 the revolution brings in a government that is completely anti-American. So it is so important to engage with these people. Their aspiration is not invalid. And it's so important to, that the United States government understands this. Yeah, very well said. That was what I was trying to get at with my question with Vidant, that this is a moment where, despite everything that, uh, that the U.S. has done, that this is a moment where if they did recognize uh, the democratic results from this election, I think that would go a long way. Uh, to mending some of the, f the fences that they broke over the last over the last few years, but but we'll see. Um, it, we're going to continue to follow it. Uh, uh, Maz Wakas, uh, thank you both for joining me. I uh, really appreciate it. When you drive a vehicle so reliable, it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty. You stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.